0: Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events, with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummins. Ukraine was founded in 1991 after the collapse of the Soviet Union, although its people, the Ukrainians, have been around for longer. Kiev, the capital, is one of the oldest cities in Eastern Europe, founded around the 5th century AD. Loosely translated, the Slavic word Ukraine means something akin to borderland or divide, and that is a fitting name as throughout its history the country has played an important role in bridging the gap between East and West. Western Ukraine is a lot closer to the rest of Europe, while Eastern Ukraine has a larger Russian influence. Our guest today just visited this borderland, and we're looking forward to his observations. So let's discuss. Warm greetings. We're back with Dan Kavalik, who is, I guess, a official, official friend of the show because we've had you on a couple of times, Dan. Indeed. Uh, uh, we had you on with your book, Cancel Culture, the first time. And then you had just finished your book, uh, Nicaragua, and you did an overview of the pink tide going down to Central and South America. I understand you're, you're visiting there again, again soon.
1: I'm on my way to Venezuela tomorrow, indeed. Yes.
0: And t- tell me what you're going to be doing there.
1: Well, there's a big Alex Saab conference. There's going to be a lot of speakers there from around the world, um, also from the Venezuelan government. Alex Saab's wife's going to speak there, um, essentially to show, you know, hey, that we still support him, we're still around, and um, this issue is not going away.
2: Tell tell folks who Alex Saab is, I think. Some, some people that watch this will not know.
1: Yeah, well, Alex Saab, I would kind of compare a bit to, to Julian Assange. He's someone that has been held now in captivity for... I guess, going on uh, three years. He is a Venezuelan diplomat, though the U.S. has tried to challenge his diplomatic status, Uh, who was kidnapped in Cabo Verde. He was on his way to Iran from Venezuela to on a diplomatic mission. He had diplomatic pouches with him. He was going to make a deal with Iran to get... um, food and medicine and other supplies for venezuela for the people um he was he went to refuel in cabo verde which is a an island nation off the coast of west africa and they were there we were waiting for him ready to arrest him they said based on an interpol notice but the notice wasn't actually put out till the day after he was arrested um, but he was arrested to be asked to the United States on um, alleged money laundering charges, which, by the way, a chief prosecutor in Switzerland went through all the bank information that is the basis of this of these claims and found no, no uh, wrongful doing. But in any case, uh, he's been held, he was held in Cabo Verde for at least a year, I think a year and a half, and then he's now... He was sent to – even though Cabo Verde doesn't have an extradition treaty with the U.S., he was sent to the U.S. He's been in a prison in Miami now for about a year and a half where he is waiting uh, to be tried on these money laundering charges. Really, he's being punished for circumventing the U.S. – very draconian U.S. sanctions against Venezuela.
2: I understand He's He's been maltreated?
1: And he's been maltreated in Cabo Verde. He was tortured. He was uh, denied medications. He was he's been recovering from cancer, and he was denied medications that he needed. Uh, yeah, and in Miami, he's been put in solitary confinement at times. And um, yeah, and, and right now he's in very bad physical and psychological condition. And again, what they're doing the only reason I compare him to Julian Assange is that. They don't ever want to really try this guy. They just want to hold him indefinitely till they probably kill him is what they want to do. You know, I mean, they they just want to keep him in this limbo state. So the Venezuelan government is very keen to have him back, um, and they're willing to give up a lot to and it had to have some sort of prisoner swap with the u s. but the u s. You know, really wants to hold on to him. I think they they treat him as a high value prisoner because he understands the workings of the sanctions and how to get around them. And for that, he's a dangerous guy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, that said, he's an interesting guy. By you know, see, his name is Saab, which may is not a Venezuelan or Latin name. He's actually uh, Lebanese by birth, and I think his I think his mom was Palestinian. One of his parents was Palestinian. And he actually grew up. He's also a Colombian citizen. Colombia South American citizen as well. Uh, He has dual citizenship in Colombia and Venezuela. Very interesting guy. Um, I've been reading his letters from prison. And, uh, you know, even though he's a businessman, um, he, he really did take a lot of risks to help Venezuela because he believes in Venezuela and he believes in socialism. In the book, he talks about socialism and how the U.S. is trying to destroy socialism. And uh, so he's a very fascinating figure. He doesn't get, uh, you know, nearly enough attention from anyone, from the left or anyone, uh, even less attention than Julian Assange, who himself doesn't get the attention he deserves. So uh, that is the sad tale of Alex Saab.
2: In essence, wow. he's a hostage. He is a hostage,
1: absolutely, just like Assange is too. Yeah, he is a hostage, you know, Um what they really want him to do is 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 you know give talk against the venezuelan government and if he would do that if he would claim they were corrupt or whatever they'd let him go i mean that that is his key is ticket out of jail but he won't do it i mean he's actually a very upstanding guy stand up guy you know he won't you know he's not going to make up lies or tell them what they want to hear so he continues to, to rot.
0: Well, maybe we'll have you back on uh, to talk about that. Uh, you recently took a a trip to Crimea and Russia and Ukraine, and we'll what well, that's what we want to chat about today. But first of all, I, this is this will be your very first time, Dan. I guarantee you. Uh, I I went to uh, chat GPT which is the new AI, and, and you tell me how accurate this is, and I, okay. I, I I I put in, who is Dan Kabalik? Dan Kabalik is an American lawyer, human rights activist, author, and academic. He's been involved in various legal and human rights issues, particularly focusing on workers' rights, indigenous rights, and international law. He's worked as a human rights lawyer for over three decades, represented workers and including those from the United Steelworkers and cases with labor rights violation and discrimination. He's also worked on cases related to the rights of indigenous communities in Colombia, advocating for their land rights and protect, protection against violence. He's a frequent commentator and contributor to various media outlets, sharing his perspective on international affairs, human rights issues, and U.S. foreign policy. And then it lists your book. How, how, how did it do?
1: Pretty good, actually makes me feel like my life hasn't been a total waste. I mean, so no, <laughs> I think uh, that you, yeah.
0: you you're you're in the you're in the big big cloud there. So that's that's great. Kind of that's neat, good. yeah,
1: that's good. Send it to me if, if you remember. Uh, that's I will. Good. I'll
0: send I'll send it to you. It's kind of it's kind of fun. So and I and is, I did fun. I did it I did it twice, once with a question mark and once without, and it gave me little very it gave me different variations with whether or not I put a a question mark in or not or or not. So.
1: Very interesting.
0: Hey I, I, let, let's talk about your trip to Ukraine. in, in my introduction, I, I, I always do a simple little introduction. I talked about how Ukraine is the Soviet, Slavic word for borderline or divide. It's kind of the you know the East is Europe, the West is uh, Russia. It's always been this kind of central conflict ground. And um, you you just got back from a trip there. You with your friend Rick uh, spent how long? Did you how uh, how long were you there? Where did you travel? To tell me about well, tell me about it.
1: Yeah, so we were in Russia for twenty days. Uh, spent time in Saint Petersburg and Moscow, and then went to Crimea, which had been part of Ukraine from nineteen. Well, I guess nineteen fifty four until 2014 now is well depending on who you ask is part back part of russia um we spent about a week in crimea mm-hmm.
0: and took, i took a I
1: 27 think- hour a 27 hour train from moscow to crimea
0: and i when i when i look at ukraine i think we have i kind of divide it up into three ukraines uh we have Crimea, which is what the Soviets uh, took over a few years ago contentiously. Um, we have the Donbass, which is the the area close to Russia, uh, which has been primarily Russian and has been—well, um, we remember when, when Trump got in, in, in trouble for— uh, denying the weapons uh, that was in the the weapons for an eight-year war of which we've been funding Ukrainians to assault people in the Donbass. I think is it fourteen thousand people have died in that that one region there.
1: Yes. Yes. So and
0: that and I and I would say that those two areas kind of consider themselves as as Russian, part of Russia. Yes. Yeah.
1: Uh, Yes. And by the way, I visited there the Donbass in November. So, yeah, I I, in Donetsk in particular. Yes, they they consider themselves uh, Russian. A lot of people, by the way, still there consider themselves Soviet before anything, which is I found quite interesting. I was not expecting that. I found that interesting. I mean, first of all, there is this like the CIA did this map in 1957 in which. They divided Ukraine up into I forget how many sec- sectors, at least twelve, maybe more, and in which they divided it, they you know highlighted it based on are they pro are these people pro Russian, pro Soviet, are they pro Europe, are they kind of in the middle, and what it showed is in the western Ukraine people tended to be pro Europe, anti Soviet. In the center, they were a little more neutral, and in the east, more pro Russian, pro Soviet, and Crimea also is very pro-Russian, pro soviet I don't know if we can
0: see this, but that's the map of the 2010 Ukraine, Ukrainian presidential election, and that's exactly right. It's just this heat map of uh, the blue is the pro-Soviet uh, um, candidate. The red is the pro, I guess you'd say, European, but it it's a big country. It's the biggest country in Europe.
1: Uh, it, it is and and even the you know as the, as some people point out the area that the russians now are occupying in in the eastern part of the country is is much smaller than the portion that the us is occupying of syria it's not that much if you actually look at a map it's not a huge amount of 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 a percentage of ukraine because as you say it's a very large country but it's a country at this point that's kind of been taped and glued together in a way that doesn't make a lot of sense i mean as one person i think a woman in crimea said it best that you know it's a shame that we're now living in a situation that was decided by three drunk three drunk guys who 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 destroyed the soviet union in 1991 who came together and decided to break up the soviet union and there wasn't much thought given to it and in fact. As I mentioned in some of my articles, I didn't know this until I went to Crimea. Crimea in January of 1991 held a referendum, which the Soviets allowed and condoned and blessed, in which they voted by huge numbers, something like 94% of the electorate voted to become an autonomous uh, republic. And to secede from Ukraine because Crimea had always had been part of Russia since 1783. It was gifted to Ukraine arbitrarily by Khrushchev in 1954, but it was never a happy marriage. But as people in Crimea said, "Well, but but no one really cared or worried about it because we're all part of the Soviet Union." So that was the main thing, and we didn't think it was going to break up. But of course, by January 1991 the writing was starting to be on the wall that things were weren't stable and so they voted to become their all, own autonomous republic but again these three drunk guys as this person in crimea said you know at the end of 1991 decided to you know to dismantle the soviet union no thought was given to complex situations like crimea Or Sevastopol, which is a city within Crimea, which itself is an autonomous city, right? So, and no thought was given to the Donbass, you know, no thought was given to what was going to happen when the republics, as then constituted, became their own independent countries. And so we're really still fighting over the dismantling of the soviet union and of course in some ways we're still fighting world war ii in large part because the u.s continued to support Mm -hmm. nazism after world war ii as some people say the u.s did not defeat the nazis they absorbed them Mm -hmm. which is in large part true so you know that that's kind of the story there yeah greg what were you what were you going to say
2: well, I, you know, I think it's it's even you know I get upset with Western commentators who talk about these na- nationalities, national groups, national cultures. They've been messed up since uh, well, Dan went back to to uh, to uh, World War II. You go back to Woodrow Wilson. Central and Eastern Europe have always been a mess. They're a a a combination of different ethnic groups, different cultural backgrounds, different aspirations. And uh, all I can say about the whole friggin' mess is the only time they've known peace and they've known relative stability is when there was a Soviet Union or Yugoslavia. When Yugoslavia was put together, it retained its identity for uh, a long period in that era uh, uh, in Central and Eastern Europe, as any entities did, as did the Soviet Union unite uh, different nationalities in a peaceful way. But it's extremely, extremely hard. And for... Western journalists and Western uh, uh, politicians to say, oh, Ukraine, is it doesn't have a history in that sense. I mean, I think Putin exaggerated its lack of a history, its lack of an identity, but there is truth that really it doesn't have uh, a history that you can point to that's sufficient to justify defense that the West is now putting for this country. Well, unless uh, you guess,
0: unless you want to def- just have a proxy war to kind of you know.
2: <laughs> well, they're right, exactly, exactly. That's exactly right. right. If it's useful to you to do so. That's fine, but that's not the realities. And of course, you can always fall back on uh, 2014. Uh, I'm sorry, 2011 and 2014, when these these various uh, uh, changes of government uh, took place, and they're all influenced by outside forces. They've never had a time when their their elections or their their perspectives were not influenced by outside forces right. that's they exist in that in that framework of of finding their identity from uh, surrogates from other people that will support their identity in various ways but the uh, polish ukrainian wars uh, right after world war 1 I, I mean there's just innumerable battles galicia those areas were always fought over It's it's a mess so the reality is you can't have these hard fast Claims that are being made in the West about the poor Ukrainians and so and Russian aggression and so on—it's a much more complex thing, which I'm sure Dan can tell us a lot about. How did how
0: did you get to Russia? How how did you how? Just tell me the logistics of this.
1: Well, this time we flew to Helsinki, Finland, and then uh, drove. It's about six hours if you include the custom stops at the border. Uh, to st petersburg it's a lot cheaper to do it that way the first time i went i flew on turkish airlines through istanbul to moscow which they're now gouging people to take that flight because it's one of the only ways to get to directly to russia so the helsinki flight makes a lot of sense and it's fast fascinating because you know after the russian intervention that started last year finland and russia have have they're now cut off from each other. The, the famous train, the famous Finland station in St. Petersburg that Lenin entered, even during World War I, right? Even during World War I, right. he could go from Finland to St. Petersburg to the Finland station. Uh, and there's still a giant statue of Lenin there, by the way. Uh, that That station's closed. There is no train service between Russia and Finland right now as of February of last year. There still is bus service between Helsinki and St. Petersburg, but it's very limited. And you go through the you go through the customs stop at the border, and like, you know, there's like 20 lanes, possible lanes for the customs, and only like two are open because there's a virtually no traffic between the two countries. You know, so it's it's very interesting to see. But that's how we got there.
0: So Dan let's let's try this. Let's try uh sharing some of the your pictures. I okay. will I, because most people I think listen to us in audio form in the show notes I'll I'll put a link so we can anybody can see all of these pictures.
1: Yeah, so this is a very old symphony hall in St Petersburg and uh a friend of mine Elena took me there the first uh full day I was in St. Petersburg to listen to a Tchaikovsky uh, performance, which was very uh, amazing. A lot of the songs were very recognizable, of course, from movies and various things. And, uh, you know, it was just a nice cultural event. Um, There were a lot of, you know, when you think of the great composers, there's so many great Russians. They even had a statue of Shostakovich there in the back hall. Uh, So that was just a great cultural event, you know, and I, you know, in some ways I put up that photo, you know, at one point the State Department was saying, well, Russia doesn't have a culture, they, they're, they're nothing but a gas station posing as a country, and of course, you know, that's far from the truth. And that's the Symphony Hall as well, people coming out, I think, during the intermission there, just a nice evening at the, at the symphony. This is a, essentially a kind of makeshift monument to um, a journalist who was killed in St. Petersburg. They, uh, it's clear Ukraine. some Ukrainians did it. They blew up a cafe in the university district in St. Petersburg to try to kill this guy, which they did, but they injured like 20 other people as well. The cafe's closed. My friend Rick and I went there and took some photos of the different memorials that people had had put up. And that's also the cafe there with, and you can see the flowers there in front of it. This I took in Moscow. I was I just happened to run into this and I was really excited. This is obviously Abraham Lincoln, and he's meeting with the czar of russia i'm forgetting which czar that was but uh, a lot of people don't know that in fact russia freed the um serfs. Uh, serfs. their slaves uh known as serfs before the u.s did and russia actually supported the union during the civil war and this is a commemoration of that this statue The next slide you can go to is uh, a monument to the famous meeting at Elba between American soldiers and Soviet soldiers during World War II. And again, you see fresh flowers at, at the monument. Russians aren't hating on America, right? Even at this time. And I thought these were really interesting examples of that. Next slide. This is a memorial uh, also in Moscow at in old Arbat street beautiful streets close to um, car traffic it's a nice shopping restaurant area and this is a monument to children of the Donbass who have you know lost parents lost family and lost lives during this now we're going on 9 years i guess 9 years of war between the government in kiev and the people of the donbass so this is a memorial right in the middle of of moscow to the the kids of the donbass next screen uh, some of these and the next screens are and you can kind of go through these fairly quickly are subways in moscow i think all the ones that i'm going to show you are soviet made where well, you can see the old soviet you know the red flag there these are like museums. I mean, you could literally eat off the floors of these subways. They're quite impressive. Next slide. Comrade Lennon, of course. Um, next slide. These are like museums. I mean, they're incredible. And then you come back to the States and, you know, you just, the, the infrastructure is collapsing, but they take very good care of these. That's outside of uh, Of a subway, again, it doesn't look like any subway stop I've ever seen here. I mean, it looks, again, it could be the opening to a symphony hall or something. It's pretty amazing. Next uh, picture. This is a family I befriended. I just met them in Red Square in November. We became friends, and um, they had me to their house for dinner. You can see they pulled out all the stops for me. even had some caviar. You can see the fluorescent orange color there. And, uh, you know, it's just, again, the Russians, they don't have any animosity towards towards Americans and actually kind of like us. And we had a very interesting conversation. You know, the husband was saying, you know, he expects very difficult times to come. He said, but Russians... Are used to that. He expects the war to maybe go on for five years, and and um, you know, all the Russians are concerned the war could really become something much worse than it is now. You know, could, God forbid, be on a scale of the first two world wars we lived through. They're very cognizant of that in a way. I don't think Americans are. They don't think about the ramifications of what's happening in the world. But again, the Russians have never been able to avoid it. Even if they wanted to, they've been invaded so many times and suffered. At least the figure they give now is 27 million people uh, during World War II, though I just saw a podcast recently saying that the Russians may have upped that to something like 34 million based on new information. I mean, it's an extraordinary, extraordinarily high number of people they lost during World War II. And, you know, people are very cognizant of that. But anyway, this is my kind of adoptive. Uh, family in Moscow next slide this is a huge mosque near the hotel we stayed in Moscow Uh, I think I was told it was the biggest in all of Europe Uh, it is quite impressive and uh, there is a big Muslim uh, community throughout Russia which has you know been true for a long time a lot of you could see a lot of Muslims around around the mosque, living around the mosque and praying in the mosque. Um, again, just a very interesting fact that maybe a lot of people don't don't think about here. Next slide. Uh, this is an old mural. I think it's made of tile. Uh, it's a memorial to firefighters. I believe that was taken in Moscow. I think either that or Saint Petersburg. I'm pretty sure Moscow. It's it's. Again, a holdover from the Soviet Union that was made during the Soviet days, and you'll see a lot of Soviet art and memorials around Russia that are still there. Which, you know, for someone like us, I mean, it's nice to see. Next slide. There's Comrade Lenin. That's taken in Moscow. Still very prominent there. I'm. I was. I'm still surprised to see how many monuments to Lenin are still standing. You know. And and I asked people about it, and they're like, well, that's part of our history, you know. And regardless of how an individual may feel about Lenin, they recognize him as a great leader of of, of Russia and, of course, the Soviet Union. And, you know, again, it's interesting to see that a lot of those monuments still stand. Next slide. Uh, Okay, so I was in Russia around May 9th, which is victory day over the Nazis, huge. Day. It's not just a day because they're celebrating for weeks in advance. And this this was in Gorky Park. Um, this is a monument to the, what is it, the Immortal Regiment, you know, people who died fighting the Nazis, um, Soviets who died fighting the Nazis. And this is a memorial to them in Gorky Park, which was put up in advance of May 9th. Uh, next slide. And you can see. Uh, more uh, memorials to soldiers there with a monument in the background to Peter the Great. You can see the big big ship there, a big monument there in Moscow to Peter the Great. That is a monument that is ah, people have mixed feelings about. Some like it, some think it's tacky, but in any case, uh, next slide. And this is um, Moscow. You can see St. Basil's Cathedral is the cathedral, I believe in the very far background so that would be part of red square i just thought you know these these uh orthodox churches are just incredible they look like to me they look like almost like giant toys or something they're just so pretty and i just thought that was an interesting photo next uh slide so this was on may 9th this is back in saint petersburg and these are people holding up pictures of relatives who died during world war ii these appear to be people who fought against the nazis there are people all around town just walking around like this with photos you can see the woman there has a hat on with a hammer and sickle um emblem again people were this celebration is incredible it's like uh, I've never seen anything like it in the US. I don't know of an analogous celebration where people throughout the country are just exuberant about celebrating and commemorating something as they do in Russia to commemorate the defeat of the Nazis, which is a pretty amazing thing. Next uh, slide. And this is in the this is in the cemetery, the biggest cemetery of people who died during the siege of Leningrad. This is a woman who survived the siege and she's be, being given some flowers here again the the outpouring of people who came to this cemetery on may 9th was incredible and i was told so we think about six hundred thousand 000 uh, soviets died in the siege of leningrad which lasted over 700 days and i was told this cemetery may have five hundred thousand people buried in mass graves here they were buried during, As the siege went on, I mean, they just had to bury people because, you know, so many people were dying. Next uh, slide. Again, this is still the cemetery. You can see someone in their old uh, Soviet uniform carrying flowers. See the families there. Next slide. A little girl putting flowers down to honor the dead in the cemetery. Again, I was just very moved. Yeah. And then here's me with uh, a man and his daughter again holding... Photos of their loved ones, uh, their their relatives who died uh, during World War II. Next uh, slide. Again, a man here also with two of his relatives and also with flowers. Next slide. That's my friend Elena, who took me to the cemetery, and she also took me to the symphony, took me to the opera last November. She's a great person, interesting person, because she's kind of, I'd say, upper middle class person she works for a haberdashery and um she said dan i didn't realize how many Lenin statues there are till you visited because you spot them all now she's reading about Lenin for the first time she's now she's like i got learned about lennon i guess she goes i didn't know much about it. so uh next uh slide a, a, a little girl putting a flower down here you on a on a a monument that says 1942 with a hammer and sickle. She has a Soviet flag as well. I mean, again, everyone was carrying flags, red flags with hammers and sickles. I've never seen such a thing, and I was told that, in fact, this is new. This is this was since the collapse of the Soviet Union. This, uh, you know, real ubiquitous display of Soviet symbols, you know, hadn't happened. But you know, between 90, 1991 and now, this is a new thing. And uh, people are now expressing their, you know, support and their, you know, sentimental feelings towards the Soviet Union. Next uh, slide. Again, still in the cemetery, still seeing people, families with pictures of their relatives from World War II. Next slide. Uh, This is the big monument there. And you can see all the flowers that people put there. You can see they're probably like, I don't know, 20 deep or more. People just came all day, next slide, bringing flowers. And you can see people coming up the steps to lay more flowers down. A young woman here with her old Soviet-style hat on with a hammer and sickle there. Next slide. Look at all these people. I mean, I just throngs of people coming to a cemetery on May 9th. Again, there's nothing in the U.S. that I can compare this to, unless you compare sitting and watching watching fireworks passively during, on 4th of July. I mean, you can see how heartfelt this is amongst Russians, you know, about the pride they feel, about Victory Day, but also the sorrow they still feel about the millions of people lost during that conflict. Next slide. Again, another man and his child also dressed up as a as a Soviet soldier. Next slide. Oh, I love this family here. they all dressed up as Soviet soldiers there at the cemetery. They have a big flag with a hammer and sickle and Joseph Stalin. Next uh, slide. This is uh, at Peter Paul Fortress, very old fortress in St. Petersburg. This is a monument to people who died defending, I believe, this fortress during World War II. And you can see very fresh flowers there at this monument. Next slide. This is a view outside my hotel at the Best Western Hotel in St. Petersburg. This is Uprising Square. You can see the hammer and sickle right out my window. Again, these were all over town. You can see an obelisk there as well, and that is the the memorial to Leningrad as a, a hero city of World War II. There are 13 hero cities from World War II because of the incredible sacrifices they made uh, during that war. Leningrad was one. It's still called the Leningrad Obelisk. By the way, the station in Moscow that you drive into on the train is still uh, Leningradsky um, Station, Leningrad Station. They haven't changed the name of that. Okay, next slide. So here we see, oh, this is Rick's photo. So hopefully I'll know all these photos. Well, this is just simply a good map showing uh, Ukraine, Russia, and Crimea in the center there. Uh, Crimea borders there, the Sea of Azov and the Black Sea. Yeah, it gives you a good idea of where Crimea is situated, which, again, most Americans couldn't couldn't pick Crimea out of a map. Apparently, most Americans can't pick Ukraine out, out of a map. Um, and interesting, I saw a thing that the farther that Americans put the peg away from Ukraine, right, the farther off they are in guessing where it is, the more supportive they are of the war, which is quite interesting. So here's uh, showing the voting tendencies in Ukraine in 2010. And you can see, I mean, it's very stark. The farther west you go, the more they voted for a more um, pro-Europe, anti-Russian candidate. And in the east, you see the blue where people voted much more heavily for a more pro-russian candidate and this shows how you know divided the country is and it's you know it's due to long long standing history you know that it is this way and again the break of of the soviet union was done in a way well it never should have happened first of all it was done by fiat of three leaders uh yeltsin who was The president of the republic, uh, the the Russian republic, and I don't know who the other two leaders, the names were, but they were the Ukrainian president and the Belarusian president, went to a cabin, and they decided to break up the Soviet Union. And that's how we got into this mess. Uh, Next, uh, this is just a uh, park here for uh, scooters and skateboards here, and this is in Sevastopol, Crimea. This is a picture I believe that was taken at a at the partisan uh, museum in Sevastopol Crimea. Um this is a it's in a house of 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 the partisans who fought against the Nazis in Sevastopol and this is a picture of people who were killed by the Nazis during World War II. Next and this is a Secret passage in this house, again, now a museum for the partisans to hide uh, in, and these are the people who, again, helped liberate Sevastopol and Crimea from the Nazis. This is a park also in Crimea, I think in Sevastopol, and they had a big May 9th displays there. You can see an old Soviet tank there. They had a lot of old Soviet equipment from World War II. Next slide. Little baby in that park, again, dressed up in a little Soviet outfit with a little uh, ribbon of St. George, which is the patron saint of Moscow, and represents really Russian nationalism. Next slide. These are some kids who were on the street corner in Crimea singing, getting ready for May 9th. They were practicing on the street, and we went up and said hi. They were very friendly, and we took a photo with them. This is um, a a museum now. It was a submarine base in Balaklava, Crimea, that Stalin built under a a mountain. It's an incredibly impressive um, structure. And he built it to house nuclear submarines. He built it in response to the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which he saw, I think quite rightly, as... Less of an attack on Japan, though they, those were the folks who suffered from it, and but more of a warning against the Soviet Union. Next slide. A submarine there from uh, again from this base, which is now a museum. Next slide, and they have a in this same museum uh, various, you know, uh, educational. Material about nuclear war and about, in particular, the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Next slide. This is a uh, a statue of a Ukrainian poet in Yalta, Crimea. And we were shown this by actually a very pro Russian woman who wanted to make a point. And other Russians in Crimea told us this that, look, you know, we think the Ukraine, Ukraine as a government, you know, was kind of abused us as Russians. Tried to outlaw our language, destroy our monuments, but we don't return that feeling in kind. You know, we still have this monument here to a Ukrainian poet, and we, we still think of the Ukrainians as our brothers and sisters. Uh, next slide. This is a fuel depot that was attacked by Ukraine shortly before we arrived in Crimea, just as we were about to get on the Kerch Bridge from the which uh was built by the Russians after 2014 to create a land bridge between Crimea and Russia for the first time ever before we hit that bridge we saw this big explosion uh there next slide this is of course is yalta palace yall at this palace which had been the palace of the tsar and then after the soviet union took it over it became you know this property of collective property of the people and uh, the famous Yalta meeting between uh, Churchill Roosevelt and Stalin was held at this palace. next slide. This is me at the monument to the three the you know the big three they called them Stalin, uh, Roosevelt and Churchill. Uh, who met there interesting thing which I didn't realize I went there we got a great tour of of the whole of all Crimea by the way but also the palace Uh, you'll see every photo from those meetings will show Roosevelt in the middle between Churchill and Stalin who couldn't stand each other Uh, Roosevelt and Stalin were very friendly towards each other and in fact Roosevelt stayed in the first floor of the palace they actually built a makeshift bedroom for him because of his wheelchairs on the first floor, so he could get around easily. Uh, Roosevelt actually felt more positive towards the Soviet Union than he did the Great Britain, at least according to some accounts that I've read. So it's very interesting. Um, Churchill, of course, was plotting—you know—even as World War II was ending—to begin the war against the Soviet Union and sadly had roosevelt lived maybe the world would be different because that was not that was not his plan but of course it was truman's plan and uh that's where we're at next slide this is uh myself our tr- nice translator and rick in front of the a replica of the table where the big 3 and and their advisors met in 1945
0: well you really get a you know, you really get a feel for it when you you see the uh, you know you see the how much that World War II meant to the Russian people, how much they were impacted by it.
1: It's kind of incredible. Again, I I don't see any analog in the U.S. I mean, the people, World War II for the Russian peoples, like it happened yesterday. I mean, that's the truth of it. Like, it's very much in their consciousness. I think if you don't understand that, you don't understand the Russian psyche, and you don't understand why they feel so threatened by NATO at their border, why they feel so threatened by neo-Nazis in Ukraine, and that the West was unwilling to make any concessions to their very reasonable national security concerns, again, in light of This history and the feelings they have is just, well, it will go down as a great historic error. I hope it doesn't go down as something worse. I mean, obviously, we could be headed towards something very terrible. And again, a great conflagration, which, you know, all of us should be worried about and fighting against, you know, and it's only by understanding each other that. We can avoid that. And really, that's why Rick and I went to Russia. That's why I went to Russia in November. I mean, I just feel, you know, in the old days, in the Cold War, when I was a youngster and I was learning from my old commie mentors, a lot of them, and even non-communists, by the way, um, were going to the Soviet Union uh, to do people-to-people diplomacy. I had a very, you know, this very Christian, you know, family I knew in Dayton did that. They even brought me back a Lenin bust, you know, and the, and that was not considered weird. I mean, that was this. The Russians weren't seen as like these devils and even this. Well, then Gorbachev, he was, of course, loved by the West. Mm-hmm. But even the other premiers like Khrushchev and, and Brezhnev were not vilified in the way that Putin has been. You know, Kennedy could hug Khrushchev without being called a traitor. Right. And even Stalin was called Uncle Joe and whatnot. I mean, the anti-Russian sentiment that is being whipped up in this country and has been really since, in a big way, since 2016 with the big RussiaGate lie is unprecedented, and it's dangerous. And and we are seeing the evil fruit that that has, you know, grown from that evil tree and uh it's disgusting and again um i I think people need to fight against that resist against that i mean i guess in in, in a certain way rick rick and i our position was just like we we reject this you know uh we're going to go to russia we're going to make friends in russia they're not our enemy there is common ground we have and you know there's things that we can learn from them and um
0: you know, my one of my frustrations is how do you get information? Um, I, you know, the last two years I've been listening to The Gray Zone with Matt, um, Aaron Maté and um,
1: Max Blumenthal Yeah.
0: and Max Blumenthal. And, you know, when they first started reporting, I thought they were nuts. I mean, I, I thought this and now I'm realizing that they're probably one of the more accurate reporters of the situation of the situation over there. Even even Jimmy Dore, I mean, I yell at about twenty percent of his content. I literally yell at the computer, and you know, I get frustrated with him. But he he's done a fairly good job of of capturing some of the done a very good job uh, problems. And I when you turn on your cable news, I it just um there's there's a script, and of course they're right sometimes, but they just they just can't define this as anything other than. Uh, uh an invasion a very bad person and and we need to re- restore democracy to ukraine and as you had expressed it's much more much more complicated than that um and we're in we're in a bad situation how are we getting out of this what do you what do you think how well do you i mean stop i think the,
1: the only way to get out of it is for the u.s to affirmatively support you know real dialogue Not just between Russia and and Ukraine, certainly that, but also that the U.S. has to have dialogue directly with Russia to deal with their real security concerns like they should have before February of last year. You know, again, one of the reasons we show the Yalta picture with Stalin and Churchill and Roosevelt is to say, look, even in the day, these three leaders... Who were particularly Churchill and Stalin very suspicious of each other? They came together to try to deal with issues of mutual concern. You know, when there was a Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, and a lot of people call what's happening, you know, to Russia a reverse Cuban Missile Crisis, right, where they're feeling threatened by missiles on their border, NATO troops on their border. Khrushchev and Kennedy were able to to negotiate their way out of it in 13 days. And they were able to reach an agreement because both of them made concessions, right? Kennedy agreed to give up the missiles in Turkey quietly in six months, right? So he asked that it be done secretly. Khrushchev agreed to that. Kennedy also agreed that the U.S. would not invade Cuba and, in return, um Khrushchev agreed to remove the missiles from Cuba. That's called negotiations, right? And that's that and it was done to prevent the world from being destroyed by nuclear weapons. And that was responsible of both of them to do that, right? But we do not have responsible leaders in Washington. We have ideologues who know nothing about the world, who know nothing about history and are leading us over the precipice. And someone has to be a voice of reason in all of this.
0: Greg, where are all the war protesters in the street? Where are all the uh, liberals that are saying, hell no, no more war?
2: I remember uh, Saturday before the war broke out, there were 12 of us on a cold cold day uh, in Pittsburgh. warning about the forthcoming war and 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 arguing against it uh, and uh frankly no one needed that for the first year in fact you couldn't get the so-called left here to respond to that war you either took sides i mean the vast majority took the sides of the uh uh the, the 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 narrative the u.s narrative that the ukrainians were fighting for their uh um their own uh independence And some on the other side, a small minority argued uh, took side of Russia, but you couldn't get an argument for stopping the war, at least in fact, in this country, what was it in January, February, the projection of an anti-war demonstration, the first one in D.C. and then a second one in D.C., I think in March or April, and uh, they were totally, uh, the left is screwed up on this. They really have no idea what's going on and apparently no real interest in finding out what's going on um but more importantly the media here i mean if you go back and look at uh, gallup polls 10 years ago the, the animosity towards the russian the russians in general the russian government putin was not great and that was turned completely around and then they shut down any alternative outlet to get information from the east like rt or sputnik all, they literally shut them down uh, as as almost as as a uh, uh a prelude to this. Mm-hmm. So it's no surprise that the American people vastly and by vast numbers support the u s. involvement. But I wanted to ask Dan, I mean the the NATO and the u s have now they've invested, I don't know, eighty billion to one hundred billion dollars in weaponry to to fuel this war, to keep it going. What do you think the real motive is? Because I don't think it's a matter of their being stupid. I don't think it's a matter of their being ignorant. I think it's a conscious, conscious uh, motive of the U.S. and NATO to fuel this and flame this. What What do you think those motives are?
1: I think they want to destroy Russia. They want to undermine and destroy Russia in the same way that, you know, Brzezinski wanted to use the Afghan war to weaken and destroy the Soviet Union. You know, and then, of course, Brzezinski would write in the grand chessboard, I think in 1997, that he wanted to use Ukraine to destroy Russia, right? We're pretty open that that's the goal, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, um, you have that RAND report from 2019 also saying how Ukraine could be used to weaken Russia. You have people like Lindsey Graham saying our money's being well-sped in Ukraine because Russians are dying. I mean, we're pretty open about the fact that we that our leaders i shouldn't say we some of our leaders um do not want a unified russia don't want you know a china they want you know essentially the us was happy to be the only hegemon after the collapse of the soviet union and they want to keep it that way and they see that slipping away now And they've decided instead of making themselves better, right, you could say, well, the Chinese have all these speed trains, they're building all these speed trains around the world. Maybe we could do that, even do better than them, right? At one point, we did try to do that, right? When the Soviets put a cosmonaut in space, Kennedy said, we got to get people on the moon, we got to show them we're better. Instead of trying to be better, we just decided we just want to go to war with Russia and China. And that's... It's insane. I mean, but we are being ruled by mad people.
0: I heard, I heard, um, I, 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 I think this is roughly correct, but 75% of all of the pundits on cable news are somehow affiliated, or uh, that are brought on as experts, uh, you know, the old generals and so forth, are somehow directly affiliated with the big four or five defense contractors. You know, directly on their payroll. So the, and as Assan said, that these conflicts are just a an excuse to drain the coffers of our tax base to give to the defense industry. Um, well,
1: that's certainly a big goal, right? I, I mean, that's obviously that's that right. So that's a good in and of itself that they see that even if right. we lose the war in Ukraine, whatever that means to these people. You've still spent good money by yeah, lining the coffers in the military industrial complex. So that's right. certainly a goal, but that's a I would say a secondary goal or kind of, you know, to the primary goal of of ultimately wanting to balkanize Russia in the way that they balkanized Yugoslavia. You know, it, it, you know, it's pretty clear. And again, the Russians, I think, were surprised by all this. From everything I've read, and Stephen F. Cohen talked very articulately about this, you know, that after the Soviet Union collapsed, Russia thought, hey, we're going to be welcomed back into Europe. We're going to be back, welcomed back into the West because they just hated communism. They didn't hate us. And they were surprised to learn no, they do hate us. And they do want to destroy russia right it's not just about the soviet union they can't live with us either and i think that was a very hard pill for the russians to swallow i think they wanted not to believe that they tried very hard not to believe that and when you hear the rhetoric of people like lavrov now and medvedev who you know was a pretty sober sounding politician I mean, you can hear how angry they are at the West. They really feel betrayed. Mm -hmm. They did not think, again, that that hatred towards the Soviet Union also applied to Russia as a nation. And um, it's a – again, this is a tragedy, and people will point fingers at who – you know, for all oh, for a time, they they there were people saying who lost Russia, right? Because and we know who lost it. It wasn't that it was lost. It was that they were pushed, they were shunned and pushed away, and and they, NATO surrounded them, despite promises they wouldn't do that. Promises made to Gorbachev. And uh, this is you know it's led directly to where we are right now. And again, mm-hmm. a lot of us saw that coming, and we warned that this was happening, and uh, you know. We're seeing this happen before our eyes, and again, it is a tragedy. It's and it was totally preventable, and and the worst is still preventable. But we're getting very close to the point of no return.
0: Right, the dam, but the dam that just broke a day or so ago um, supplies most of the water to Crimea, and yeah, I it's it, we you know it's just getting worse and worse. It's offensive. Well, you,
2: you can't you can't know what's true from uh, our perspective. I mean, if you're looking at those events and trying to analyze them or draw some conclusions about them, whether it's the war, who's winning, uh, what happened in this particular city or that particular city, or this assault or that assault, etc., you can't know that from our perspective. You just can't because you recognize right away the media is just taking the State Department. Uh, statements and repeating them. there's no no uh, roving reporter going into the other side. I mean, most wars there have been. There have been uh, stringers that would uh, represent the other side. Here we get one side, and uh, you have to be clever and 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 you have to like delve into it. For example, the the, the big offensive that's supposed to be happening now. Obviously, you're hearing apologies in the Western media for why they haven't done better. That is to say, the Ukrainians haven't done better, so you can conclude that they're not doing better, that they're not doing as well as they expected in this war, because there are apologies all over about, well, you got to wait, There's, it's coming, it's going to be more. So you have to uh, really extrapolate from the little glimmer of information you get. Frankly, we're in the dark. We don't have any idea what's really going on in, in, in Ukraine are on the war front, it's just uh, terrible. But I would add that there are economic motives here at play. It's not simply just because you go back to the uh, to the nineties uh, uh, and in, into the early part of the twentieth century before Putin really became a uh, 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 stronger and, and 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 led led Russia, and U.S. Uh, uh, capitalism was ex- was was, ec- was ecstatic about going to Russia and And there was a love fest going on. When Putin decided that we they they need to retain some nationalization of some of their uh, industries and their resources and control them, and not let Western capital come in and pillage their capital, that's when the u s. started to become hostile. and it reached a peak with natural gas because we had an abundance of it. and the and and uh, the EU was buying all from Russia, and that was unforgivable. And that's now been put a stop too. I don't think there's ever been a turnaround in energy resources where they're sourced for a block like uh, the EU in history, where it turned around on a dime and it all turned around around this war. Uh, yeah. So same with China. I mean, as long as the American capitalists could go to China and make tons of money, they were okay. But once the Chinese began to look out their own affairs and, and keeping their uh, resources there and so on, and developing as competitors and legitimate competitors to the US the hostility broke out
0: dan you're doing good work yep. you are oh. and i every little bit helps i mean even uh, I, when i looked at your slides and read your blogs uh, you know this is just more information that i think is going to ultimately educate people and have them realize that uh, cooperating and getting along is much better than what we're doing you know what both sides are doing now with these conflicts i mean it's not it's it's it there's some mutuality here and people behaving badly and um got to stop
1: so yeah well i appreciate you saying that i mean I, i need to hear that because it's it's you know these trips are not easy. I mean, we we spent 70 hours in trains and, you know, we funded the whole, I should say we funded the whole thing out of our own pocket. It's not like anyone funded us. No one, we didn't have a tour guide, uh, you know, getting us on trains or, you know, any you know, we bought our own train tickets and we did whatever we did on our own. We didn't have any help doing that. And, um, you know, whatever we wrote or whatever we published, we did based on our own observations not because anyone told us to do whatever you know but but it's not easy to do these trips you know um it's very expensive and takes a lot so i'm glad to hear that you think there's some value in it i mean i pray there is because that's why i'm doing it you know Mm. and i feel almost a i feel almost a panic need to keep doing it because i do see humanity in the balance here so yeah
0: good Thank you.
1: Thank you both. I appreciate you. Thank you. I enjoy your podcast very Good. much.
2: Thanks, Dan. <laughs>